I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. We just had an AI voice say recording in progress to us. How perfect is that? I'm keeping that in there. Anyways, welcome back to Parallax Views. Uh, Grant Gallagher, who has been on the show before, especially when uh, COVID start, started. That was, uh, I think, a few years ago now that we had you on. Uh, and you're back now to talk about your Newsweek opinion piece, Why AI Panic is Not About Safety. Uh, first off, uh, how are you doing, and uh, what are your thoughts on how things have changed since we had you on when the pandemic started? So, doing well. Appreciate you asking. Uh, that would be a whole interesting thing to revisit. Um, I definitely think the things have accelerated, changed in interesting ways. What's interesting about the pandemic is I feel there's there's sort of a weird exhaustion with talking about it or kind of a taboo like it it's it's interesting that it was kind of supposed to define politics for a decade or something like that and i i remember there was even excitement about positive things that could come out of it or things like that now it's it's just something you don't hear much about i mean it it's weirdly um, I the think the same was- thing has happened with like, uh, you know, last year, all we would talk about is Ukraine. Now it's, you know, I think everyone's fatigued. It's sort of at the edge. Yeah, right. We, we kind of barreled from one crisis into another. And it also felt like Ukraine, in a way, was the kind of necessary crisis to barrel into to get out of the last one. It's, yeah, it's sort of like they're the and when I say there, I kind of mean politicians um, kind of need these things to cling to um but then they also now that ukraine is kind of a bit of a quagmire they feel adrift again in a way right right i mean uh, just so my list i'm not saying it's not important to talk about like ukraine or 
the pandemic or any, but it, there is, it's, it's, it's like we move away from these things, you know? Well, it, it, it's like, what's important to talk about them and the political discourse are two completely different subjects right. in a way. Right. Like we can, we can mock the political discourse about a thing and then also recognize that there's meaningful things to talk about, which actually I think our topic AI kind of fits under that umbrella. Well, AI is the new thing that everyone's talking about now. Right. So. It, it, it's the crisis. And that's kind of why I went with the title, why AI panic is not about safety is not because I don't think that there's any societal implications or we'll call them risks even related to the development of AI, but very specifically, you have a moment where all of a sudden it's in the sun and it's, it's the topic du jour, um, which is, I don't know. It, it used to, it went through these upswings and downswings of interest. I mean, I remember there was a lot of image based AI excitement a couple years ago. And, but this is the first, I don't know. There's something about this that has a little more staying power. And that's also moved the markets a little you mean, bit. More. You think we're, we're, when you say the image based out, you mean like the deep fakes sort of scare? The deep fakes and when people were finding out what mid journey was and what uh, the Google dream stuff was when, when people like, or those apps that would make like an AI Renaissance pet portrait of you came out, those kinds of things of the last two to three years, four years, had a little bit of an impact, but they didn't really create the same societal level conversation. They didn't move the markets in the way we're having a little bit of an AI movement. Some people would call it a bubble, potentially, I might agree, um, that kind of thing. And then this, this kind of ca catastrophic narrative about AI as well. Well, he... I mean, you hear it from, you've heard it you from- You cut future. out there for a second. You said this catastrophic- um... The catastrophic narrative about AI, it's it's something that I think we would see from futurists in the past, like technologist type people. I, that, I was going to say one of the articles that I keep seeing over and over is this economist piece about uh, Yuval Noah Harari, you know, the guy that wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus- Saying, yeah. oh, AI has hacked the human operating system of human civilization. It's the end, you know, like, and he is one of those sort of futurist voices. So, yeah. Right. It's like we're like Ray Kurzweil or whatever. It's it's weird how much stuff like that. And I don't want to get us too off track with this because this is a whole other can of worms. But it's weird how some stuff like that, like um, with the UAPs, for example, has suddenly become politically mainstream in a way right, the that, unidentified aerial phenomenon yeah yeah yeah, like, like, <laughs> yeah like okay like it was definitely cooler when like fox Mulder was into it than when uh harry reed <laughs> was you know but it's it's definitely a uh it's become yeah that, that that's a whole other thing but i i have a thought too about like mainstream politics becoming more conspiratorial. And and I think people also take that as like, they only see like the right wing version of that. But I think all of politics has become very conspiratorially driven um, in a way in the last few years. Uh, and maybe this AI thing would fit into that potentially, potentially. So, so just give, give your like basic assessment of 
where you think AI is at right now and why you think that maybe these concerns about safety are obscuring other things. So a lot of my article, my opinion piece focused specifically on OpenAI CEO, Sam Altman. And so he has recently come out with a bevy of sort of, well, he was very optimistic about AI and now he's an AI doomer in a huge way. And let me go straight to your question about where I think AI is. I mean, it's it's impressive, something like chat GPT, GPT-4. I'm not going to downplay that the growth over the last few years has been interesting, that kind of thing. But all of a sudden, you have people talking like we've got functional AI or general AI right on the horizon. And I think that is a huge stretch. It still very much needs human beings to mediate how it works and that kind of thing. But it's kind of exploded in terms of the the panic over it. And I, I noticed that like the signatories on these big statements talking about how dangerous AI was included the CEOs of AI companies. Yeah, it's I'm interesting. Like, they have some skin in the game here. Yeah. I'm like, okay, why do you why did you pour a bunch of resources into developing a thing? And now you're talking not okay. If they were saying there's labor issues that could come up, there's different problems that could arise. But the recent statement that came out was about the extinction of the human race that puts, you know, it's on par with nuclear weapons. AI is going to, you know, they're talking like Terminator Skynet is about to happen. I still see a lot of grammar issues with ChatGPT, you know, (laughs) like let alone like that it's going to become self-aware, right? And I understand if you talk to it and you kind of coax it into pretending to be self-aware, it'll go, I'm alive. But that doesn't mean that it really is. And um, even AI, right? That's such a broad term. The recent thing has been these uh, LLMs, which is language, large language models. Uh, They're a very specific type of AI and they don't, they're not thinking, they're not using logic, they're not solving puzzles. What they do is they, they're, it's generative text. It, it looks at a large quantity of input information. So tons and tons of articles and other things it's trained on. And it, it kind of has a sense of what would be said next. And chat GPT is like a filter that you put on the the GPT language learning model or large language model. And then you, it, it kind of acts like a person in that it'll kind of pretend to answer questions or pretend to be in a dialogue with you. But ultimately what it's really doing still is fill in the blank. Here are some words. Here's what comes next. So, so it's, it's like a parlor trick version of Google. <laughs> In a, a little bit. I mean, I mean, I hate to put it that that bluntly, and it's probably not a correct categorization, but I think you get what I mean. It, it's like the it's autofill times a billion. Yeah, um, I I could I could see a ver- like a, a a way of calling it that, but it's it's, and I don't want to downplay that. Like, you yeah, can, I don't want to say it's not impressive at all, but you yeah. can generate content off of this. But 
one of the things about that is you're only ever going to be original with the content you generate if you try to mash together things that are very different because it can really only work from what exists. You know, it doesn't have that originality. Already existing knowledge that has already been produced. Yeah. You'd have to tell it like, write me a sci-fi story, a 1950s sci-fi pulp story starring Sigmund Freud with that. Like you have to like combine really random weird elements for it to do something new because it is just synthesizing stuff that exists. Which that that is a prompt I gave ChatGPT and it did come up with something kind of. Oh, I've given it some weird prompts like that. Trust me. (laughs) It's also fun too. I mean, there are people, and this can get into some of the conversation about the quote unquote dangers, but people have spent a lot of time already trying to kind of hack ChatGPT in a way where get it, get it to say something offensive or something. I mean, what ChatGPT considers offensive, it's very prudish. This is one of the things. Oh my God, is it prudish? I went through a period of playing around with it and having it write like horror movie type TV shows or like, do yeah. like a Freddy Krueger hosts a movie show, you know, like Elvira. It's like, well, Freddy Krueger is violent. We can't do this. Like, what the hell? Oh, and when you when you get it to talk about that, it'll it, it sort of has a funny morality, though, because it really likes to wrap up stories with like a good moral ending. So if you do get it talking about Freddy Krueger, Krueger it'll be like. And then Freddy Krueger learned that it was bad to slice people up and he went to therapy and everybody lived happily ever after. Like it doesn't, it can't even like tonally end on a sad note unless you really tell it to as well, which is funny. But I mean, look, this thing, if you want to make Hallmark movies, you could write the the script to any Hallmark TV special about a girl who falls in love in a Scottish castle very easily now all right the writers strike it makes sense um but still i mean the, to to it's it is a bit of a leap to extinction i do think there's a there is a a road to go and that sort of brings me to that question of okay why are people who spent a lot of money making this happen all of a sudden stoking the panic about it well, aren't they also some of them sending out mixed signals? Like Sam Altman, for instance, didn't he threaten to pull out of the EU uh, over CHAP GBT being overregulated? Well, that's that's a point I make in the article as well, is that he's he wants to be regulated. And, and my article kind of gets into this idea of that this is really about regulatory capture in a certain way. Um, but we I want also, to be regulated, but only on our terms. We want to be regulated in this specific way. And it feels a bit like the, the tech industry is trying to cozy up and kind of fall back on the government in a way to kind of go like, because they don't actually have functional AI yet, but they want to lock in their monopoly on this technology because it has gotten noticed. It's like, okay, we can replace, maybe we can replace some some writers or something like that with this thing copywriters that kind of thing and like at like content mill type places um and so it's something the business community has started taking an interest in so there is now this need to lock in who the major players are and so the recent panic and the the drive for regulation is also paired with altman who has gone to Altman, you know, OpenAI runs ChatGPT. 
and Altman is their CEO, he has gone to Biden and Harris and to the Senate and said, please regulate me. And he's like sticking out his hands for the cuffs. And then he's gone to the EU and he said, I'm going to pull out if if we're overregulated here. And that to me sends the message of, like you said, we want to be regulated on our own terms. And that also playing into that, one of his proposals for how AI should be regulated is that for a large enough AI, you should have to have a license from the government to research AI. And so it's very clearly a specific form of regulating AI where let's pick the winners, let's have the government pick who the winners are. The government will obviously have influence over what is and isn't misinformational on on these AI platforms, which again, kind of gets into the prudishness of it, right? Like regardless of whether you're left, right, neither, like if you ask ChatGPT to give you a poem about Joe Biden, it gives you an inspirational poem. And if you ask it to give you a poem about Donald Trump, it tells you that he's bad, which whatever, maybe that's, you could believe that's true, but it sort of highlights that there's an attempt to cozy up to regulators and who's in power and that you can you can see where that goes and so is any of this about the public's well-being it seems like they're using the idea of the public's interest the public safety the public well-being and people's genuine fears around ai which usually people's genuine fears around ai are am i going to lose my job which none of this political discourse is really about um they are talking about other things, you know, and I think for, um, for the, and I mostly focus on the company's side in the article, this, this potential to lock in crowd out competitor, AI developers, be the favored regulated ones have influence over what the regulations are. But I think from the political end, there's the same desire to control what's going on and the same fear of the loss of control. And which also brings us into that misinformation panic and things like that, where, I mean, there's there's fears of, you know, geopolitically, what does it mean? Militarily, what does it mean? And all of that boils down to what's China going to do to it? Am I going to lose control? You know, there is there's a laziness politicians have where they'd love for it to solve some problems for them. But again, loss of control is very scary for politics. Yeah, I was going to say with the misinformation stuff, um, how do I put this? I, I think it's complicated for me because, I mean, conceivably with AI image generation and even some of the deep fake stuff I've seen, I'm like, oh, this actually could cause like major issues with like actual like really, you know, um, really well done fake news being released. And I can well, see my- how that would like you know, cause a lot of chaos. Uh, But at the same time, I do get weary of the way we propose dealing with that, I guess. Well, and I I think of it this way too. One of the other risks with how good AI voice stuff is, our conversation right now, even if neither of us had put any, any other content out on the internet up until today, this was the first time either of us ever publicly spoke anywhere. You have enough voice data to 
to have an AI of either of our voices off of this conversation alone. So say I lose my credit card and say I call my bank and I give them my new address to send the new credit card to. And it's you've just just a deep fake of my voice. So there are, of course, there's real actual stuff that you can do with this. But I also think Pandora's box is kind of open on a lot of this. I mean, we've I think we're more in a mitigate and adapt situation than we are like, uh, how do we stop this? It's it's. What do you mean stop it? You already have the advanced deep fake video. You have the advanced deep fake audio. So, I mean, there's no way to get rid of it. The internet is everywhere. It's already networked to every corner. So really it's how as a society do we adapt to this? And that also requires having some trust in people, which I'm not saying people are that trustworthy, but then like, what else do you do? I mean, there's 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 the road of of society having to have the tough struggle of figuring it out, or there's clamping down and thinking you've solved the problem. It still exists on the margins, and we never really actually did figure out how to adapt to it. So there are changes and problems that it introduces, but that kind of happens with a lot of groundbreaking technologies over the years. And I think there's similar fears get expressed. And um, I mean, we already have a, a counter example I'd have too is weirdly from the Russian side, you know, there was the big thing about the uh, bots in the 2016 election. There's been academic research. And even on the Russian side, there's been talk of like, well, we actually did try to influence the election, but we don't think what we did on Twitter actually made much of a difference is something that like some of the Russians involved in the kind of Twitter bot farm type stuff have actually expressed since 2016 is like, yeah, we tried to interfere, but it kind of seems like what happened was what was going to happen. And I think a lot of that might apply to the broader thing about misinformation right now where people and states will use AI to try to thumb the scale, but ultimately, is it going to be the decisive thing? People will also adapt. I mean, we have a generation coming up now that has grown up on the internet, and it's not always going to be that the internet is dominated by like boomers and that kind of thing, which by the way, no, I'm not a boomer hater, like whatever. Um, but it's like, you know, the, the general thing I'm trying to express, though, is that computer literate people are adults now. And the upcoming generation has always had computers around, like to a degree that not even I can relate to, you know, like they didn't even have the flip phones. And so I think, I don't know. I mean, there is a, a certain uh degree to which i think the misinformation panic is also about like politics and fear of loss of control yeah you kind of get into that at the end of the article when you talk a little bit about um elon musk so how does elon musk figure into all of this so elon basically was on the kind of um 
the side of hitting chat GPT for being biased against conservatives. I don't actually think that's chat GPT's only bias. I mean, I think there are lots of ways, as we were talking about chat GPT being prudish, there are lots of ways to trigger its filters. It is pretty like wary of misinformation in a way where it kind of won't even look at the reasonable um, nuances of anything. And I think that's a, a lot of the kind of fact checker, debunker type of world is prone to its own blind spots around establishment kind of belief and things like that. ChatGPT suffers from that as well. But for Musk, he was focusing more on this kind of basic narrative of ChatGPT leans left. It doesn't like right-wingers, which is also kind of true. Um, Whether you kind of care about that or not, whether you believe Elon is right about that or not, it does highlight that as soon as we get into this kind of thing like Altman is proposing, where the state licenses people to regulate AI, like licenses whether you're allowed to make an AI or not, people are going to craft their content filters towards the administrations that are in power and towards what they think will be allowed. And then that just gives politics complete influence over which over over a, a robot which people are going to take as objective truth. You know, if you're worried about misinformation and that people are going to take what an AI tells them as objectively true, well, why would poli- why would you actually trust politics to be any more honest than the rest of the world? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I've used ChatGPT to. I, I I like messing around with it, so I will do something like, like to use a really pop culturey uh, example. I will be like, okay, give a libertarian assessment of like the Spider-Man comics, and I'll be like, give me a a Marxist analysis of Spider-Man, and it will do both. I mean, it's really just sort of like throwing back uh, whatever you ask of it to you. It, it, it doesn't, and I think in most ways, it just replicates whatever the ruling ideology is. It. I would agree, though, that like it is not hard to get around its biases. Um, yeah. Like you, if you just give it at face value a liberal or a conservative thing, it tends to be more favorable to the liberal thing. But it's just not very hard to to frame it in the right language of like, I'm aware of the risks of misinformation, like knowing that we are in a role play, like there's lots of weird ways that people actually get around the filters on GPT that are are kind of fun. And I think this is going to increasingly be, if, if AI does cause social issues, I mean, some of it will be something like you know, you're trying to talk to your insurance company and it's mediated by one of these stupid robots and you're like banging your head into the wall. So figuring out how to get around these things, filters and internal logic is going to be a talent potentially if this actually gets widely implemented. Um, but again, that's that's such a different everyday life kind of banal issue compared to the panic of dystopia and Skynet. Or, <laughs> yeah, Skynet, that kind of thing. Um which is which is 
how politics uh, and the and the the high tech private sector seems to be framing things right now in kind of the most scary way possible. So then, where do you think this debate is headed from here? Just more of the same with uh, companies sort of jockeying for position to get the administrative state's approval? That's a good question because you're – there's also this weird global decoupling going on that kind of – it's back and forth with countries. Will there ever be a place where – AI is completely regulated that can actually contain AI in other places, you know, and, or, or a, a better way of saying that is, can they actually get it under wraps or is there always going to be some haven where you can develop it however you want? Um, I tend to think that's the case. Another thing is, as far as the debate goes, maybe it'll end like most political debates just kind of fizzle out as the new shiny object enters our our vision and AI will play out however it was going to play out. And maybe there'll be some backroom deals about who gets to do AI. It probably won't be as explicit as licensure to research AI. I think Altman was very bold in proposing that. And I think it's kind of an it's almost like negotiating or kind of showing your hand of what you want. And I think for, for politicians, it's not like a subtle enough form of regulatory capture or regulatory cooperation. Um, I think we're more likely to see just favoritism. It's a little like the military industrial complex. I think what we're seeing from the tech industry right now in the way that they're running to the government um, and AI seems to be like a last hope of tech right now in a, in a lot of ways. Um, it, it, it's it's yeah. A I was diff- gonna say it is interesting that AI starts getting big around the time that stuff like Meta is just collapsing. <laughs> it, it really is a case of how much companies lean on the state now, um, and how they are really not sure where to go next uh with the markets uh things like that seem to to go into this and it seems like they need to pull the trigger on ai now even though they don't have functional ai for some reason and i think maybe the dead end of the tech industry is a part of that the desire to make these things proprietary is a part of that um getting in on the regulations as soon as possible the state being afraid of losing control over it once it's actually something. But it, it just seems like it it's set up to be similar to that military, industrial, public, private, hand-in-hand type of thing that the tech industry wants now and that drove a lot of the... Even the mid-2010s till now, the tech industry has really kind of gotten whipped in line I think by its regulators and by the state, you see um, stuff like Facebook groups, for example. I remember Facebook groups used to be a really accessible way to like 
talk to people and to form little communities or you had stuff like Facebook neighborhoods popped up. But weirdly, these the actual ways that you could use social media to network with like-minded people and come up with ideas and those kind of things have all kind of been whipped away and disciplined, um, I think, kind of tying into that misinformation panic. And we're seeing much more of a kind of curated, branded internet. Um, those kind of Wild West days of the internet have seemingly really died out over the last- Oh, it's all disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that- in the in the way that tech kind of folded on all of that, they but willingly, there's kind of a willing folding into politics that's going on with this issue as well. It's kind of similar in that way. Um, weird fact about Altman, also OpenAI CEO uh, Altman, he is a prepper. He's like a like a. I did like not a, know that. Like a doomsday prepper. Like, which also lends itself towards maybe him being able to perform this role of the scared of extinction guy really well. In 2016, he said, quote, I have guns, gold, potassium, iodide, antibiotics, batteries, water, gas masks from the IDF and a big patch of land in Big Sur I can fly to. That's like a direct Sam Altman quote. And I see guys like Zuckerberg posed in body armor recently. These guys are really afraid of collapse and decline and things like that now. And I think like the diminishing returns on their industry plays into this. There's something connected with all of this that, that that's kind of intriguing. Um, whereas I, I don't really think we're on the verge of like a sudden thing, but there's an interest in being prepared for anything among the elite right now that that's kind of compelling. I want to go back to the, I, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on it because I think you were interested in other aspects of this conversation more, but uh, the whole political bias thing. I mean, I, I'm kind of, I have to be honest. I'm kind of skeptical when people say that it has this super left-wing bias in the sense of, I think, I think it has sort of a centrist establishment bias, but if mm. I ask it, let's say I ask, chat gpt about like the israel palestine conflict it inevitably just gives me a response where it's like what well, we should all sing hands and sing kumbaya like, mm -hmm. it kind of to me it's like it's not even that it's like super left-wing it's just super like milquetoast centrist well i mm, there's a couple ways of attacking or getting into that one would be i think that like over the last few years, left wing and milk toast centrist have gone through a little bit of a merger, right? Like there is a kind of uh, the way the way that the left kind of collapsed into the center and became this like kind of attack chihuahua for them more than really like I don't see an independent left in the way I did even kind of six or seven years ago. Um but well, there is this thing where that doesn't Democrat, really answer your the, question. So I'm sorry. I was well, kind no, of no, getting no, it's a good point because I mean, in. the Democratic Party does have like, you know, anyone to the left of center by the balls because, it's, you know, the threat is always, well, you don't have anywhere else to go. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it, there is that whip of of like fascism's right around the corner. You got to be with us. And, you know, OK, um, but the. 
to let me let me let me give you a fair answer because I I that's just something that's been on my mind more than really directly addressing what you're saying and I, I want to make sure I'm actually getting to your point there about like it tends to because even if the far left has folded into the center they do have different talking points so I'll, I'll give you that that it, it will lean towards a safer centrist talking point for sure but it seems to have the establishments like kind of fear of like stuff like populism and things like that. Like maybe even more than the right wing. Cause like, I'm sure you could get it to talk about the free market favorably or like sent like, like I think it, it's fine. I'm sure chat GPT is fine with being like a Mike Pence Republican or something like that. Like kind of right. like, you know, or, or like a Mitch McConnell type Republican. I think, I think it's, it's afraid of, um, more of like a populist type of thing. It, it tends to have more warnings about the dangers of that kind of stuff. Um, so I would agree that it's 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 less of a... Um, it, it does tend to... Like there's an, there is an academic article linked in... Or a preprint, I should say. It's an academic preprint linked in my, my opinion piece that goes through a table and it brought up different figures and it's default. This is the Technical University of Munich and the University of Hamburg preprint study, right? Yes. Yes. So they basically, they fed, they fed it names of people or brought up different political figures and it tended to be more favorable towards, it had like kind of a green center left bend to it, which you know, my point in raising that is not that that's the most offensive thing in the world or something, you know, and, and I need, I need chat GPT to be like mega pilled or like, that's not my, my, my message here, but it does kind of, I don't know. It, 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 it reflects, like you said, the establishment in, in a way. And that kind of, um, that's more the the bothersome part of of it because even its interpretations of i don't know i will say like you said before it often will reflect back whatever you want it to and um there are pretty easy ways to coax it into talking about whatever you want so the to me the political bias it has is very permeable right now but i also could see that changing i could see them like the more people are people try to hack it, the more filters they throw on it. It also becomes much less useful because it has to tiptoe around different stuff. Right, right. You know, you know what I think is going to happen eventually? I think we're we're eventually going to have like all these different types of AIs. We're going to have like right-wing MAGA chat GPT and then like centrist chat GPT. And they'll argue with each other instead of us arguing with each other on Twitter. <laughs> that actually sounds maybe we could abolish politics entirely by just having the whole conversation take place through these AI art. It's like that Zizek. It's a little vulgar, so I won't I, I if anybody gets the reference, it's like Zizek talking about that date with the toys. But um, like that happens over there. And then we're free to actually have a real conversation about what's going on in society. Um, yeah, maybe that's the best outcome is, uh, we can just automate the discourse, uh, instead of having to, having to have it ourselves. But yeah, I could see that, you know, you've got, you've got like different political stripes of AI, that kind of thing. And I do think that is maybe a limitation 
of um, somebody like Elon's critique of AI is like he might make or like he might make like truth AI and it just right, like right so, right can we, can we just, just have an AI that's more biased to the right instead <laughs> that would be the solution <laughs> yeah but um yeah that that seems to be where that would go which like of course all of this folds into like attempts to kind of juice up the culture war which seems weirdly like flat at the moment um and people are just desperate and people in politics are kind of desperate to revive the culture war but it's like what is it going to orbit around i don't know yeah that's interesting because it does bring us back to the one thing we don't talk about with ai which is like displacement of workers or economic impacts against workers it does seem like that's the one issue that we don't touch instead we're touching on the sensational and i guess sexy topic of you know, Terminator of the Skynet creatures, you know, coming after us. Pre- I, creatures, I mean robots. <laughs> That's like a very cyberpunk thing to call them creatures, actually. Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> mechanical, like you're you're actually advancing a few stages. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I do think that's interesting, right? Like how will it affect creatives, that kind of thing? Because if you look at the market right now, like unemployment is supposedly very low, but then we also keep seeing these rounds of layoffs. Um, and so uh, some friends and I have termed what we're going through um, in the employment market an office jobs recession. And I think that that might be, I mean, can AI actually replace all of those people? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think, if you're like a programmer, it's a useful tool, but then there still needs to be somebody driving the bus in a way, like to give it its instructions, its commands, what to do. And ultimately, like rather than that person being an executive or a manager, it's helpful for that person to also know somewhat how coding and all of that works. Same thing with the creative industries, right? Like if you're looking for an AI to do your copywriting for you. Well, who's going to give it the best prompts? Probably a copywriter. Um, Who's going to like edit it properly and come up with something usable? Probably a copywriter. So it kind of like, you might be able to thin the herd a little bit, but I don't think you can actually eliminate all of these jobs through it, if that makes sense. Um, Well, it's it's even true when you look at like, I, I will see all these Twitter posts about, Look at this AI generated fake movie trailer. You know, AI generated in animation is the future. Hollywood is going to be out of business. And then I look at the AI generated animation and I'm like, this is th- the person you're showing me has like five fingers in this shot. Like, what? Like, this is not really, I don't think we're in, in, uh, in danger of seeing everything get replaced by AI in the entertainment industry anytime soon. No, and God, though, like the last 10 years of filmmaking might as well have been AI, right? But (laughs) um, with exceptions, with exceptions, of course. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly true, too. Like, I don't find that it has the creative chops quite yet um, to do stuff like be original. And oftentimes, too, AI will lie to you. Like ChatGPT will just be wrong, like openly and and not in like a misinformation, like Russian. No, it is not good for like, if I'm doing, I will not use that for research when I do these shows 
because it will just give me information. Like it, it, it will just make stuff up. Like, and you can confront it about it, and it'll be like, "I didn't do that." Like it, it almost get. It almost seems like it's being petulant with you, but it's actually just its prerogative to respond and it's it's like an improv comic like it's yeah, got yeah. A, see the thing i yes get is I, i'll correct it and then it'll be like oh i was wrong <laughs> sometimes it says it was it'll say it was wrong but i've asked it like where is that thing i asked for and it'll be like it's right in paragraph nine i look and there was nothing there's nothing there it's so it like it'll it chooses different strategies i think based on different things but it is ultimately an improv actor and it's going to yes and you on things. So if you have a wrong premise, sometimes it'll just go right there with you. Um, but it, it just, I don't know. Sometimes it just doesn't get it. And maybe it'll get better at that stuff and and we can revisit this. Well, that's I, the argument people always make, right? Yeah. Like, well, you're right. The AI generated animation isn't that great now, but think about a year from now. And I'm like, well, we don't know. That's still an unknown, you know? And I think no matter how good it gets, like there will always need to be some human mediating some of these processes at some level. I mean, it just, it's, even if you need somebody who just presses enter or something like that, I mean, I don't know. It's just, I, I do, I do kind of have trouble and this could be a lack of imagination on my part. Don't get me wrong. I have trouble imagining the apocalypse stuff people talk about with it. I can imagine market shifts. I can imagine certain jobs being not replaced, actually, but reduced. Like, basically, you need fewer writers or you need fewer animators or you need fewer programmers. But I don't see, like, programming has been replaced by AI. Like you still need somebody who knows how it works to just even double check that these things work because we don't even know how they work internally. And like that to me just says that there needs to be some external human being who like stamps the thing or something, you know? And and right now, which is the time we're living in everyone, we live now, not in a speculative future. It's not even good enough to replace like copywriters, graphic artists, programmers. Well, even it, even probably Hollywood writers. I mean, it, it seems it, like it the can, WGA strike is going quite well. Yeah, and it can support. I think actually it can be a nice tool for generating random ideas. Like if you have writer's block and you're just like, uh, give me like, give me 20 ideas of what I could say about this thing here. It'll come up with, 19 and a half bad ideas and half of a good idea. And then you take that half of a good idea and combine it with something original and you might have broken your writer's block. But that is a very different thing from like being able to do your job for you. So what do you think are the real concerns and the real um, issues with AI? And then what do you think the biggest bunk is about it right now? What are the real concerns? The real concerns are less, what is it? I think it remains to be seen what its societal aspect is um, in the long term, what it really moves and shakes, if it really moves and shakes things. Because right now, 
the changes it's making are more changes people are making kind of speculatively. So companies are seeing that it has potential and they're going, okay, maybe we can trim some of the herd in terms of our staffing with this. And maybe we can do this and that. And maybe in the future, we'll make a ton of money off of this thing. So it's fueling some market motion right now. Maybe the risk is just that that bubble pops, right? Like what if that's the real risk is that that you you can't make Skynet out of it. And like we've pumped all of this money back into tech that kind of fell out of it. And we have yet another bubble that pops in in this kind of way that's been happening lately. I mean, maybe that's it. It seems almost like their last hope to keep the economy going until the election in a, in a way too, like, like, can we keep this thing from, from falling off the, like keep the wheels from falling off the cart right now type thing. And, and this seems to be one of the things that's generating a little bit of excitement in, in, for financial markets. So, you know, maybe there's risk of what if the high kind of comes down and it didn't transform society, right? There, I agree about the labor issue, though. I do think there, there is, there is concern about people losing jobs from it. But what do you I, think of the writer's strike? Since we sort of mentioned it in passing, yeah, yeah, the writer's strike. I'm, I'm weird on it because I'm not a big fan of how Hollywood writers write movies and television now. But I'm also, I kind of understand as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm supportive of them generally. So, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Ultimately. You know, I I am not against the writers in the writer's strike, that kind of thing. It's an interesting thing to think about because I don't know if I can even blame writers for the way Hollywood has had these diminishing returns lately. I think there's some kind of lack of like, there's something broader culturally underpinning the decline of, of media and art. Um where art institutions, weirdly, I think art institutions have also done the same thing we were talking about with the tech industry, with this um, running to the state. But to to art, it looks more like running to politics is the more obvious expression of it. And so I don't think that like shows, for, for example, like, I don't care, like, I don't think the average person really like is that bothered about shows kind of going woke in the sense that they're like, oh, my God, I'm so offended that there's a gay couple in The Last of Us. Like, I I don't think that's what actually bothers people about, like, the quality of writing right now. Um, But I also think there's like a tendency for writing today to go down political paths that aren't very deep, right? Kind of superficial kind of. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, listen, I I mean, for me, it's like, I'm a big fan of Godard, right? And he he was like, you know, the most far left of all the far left uh, French filmmakers, right? But there was still moral complexity in his work. And I just, you know, this stuff that comes out of Hollywood today, whether it's like, you know, a quote unquote, what people call a woke show, or whether it's even like, a Dallas Sony ear produced right-wing movie on the daily wire. A lot of these like products, uh, they're sort of just pandering and there's no moral complexity. 
So Reds, let's talk about Reds, for example, right? That's a movie that talks about politics, but it is it is ambivalent, right? And there's not a lot of political material in, out of Hollywood that is ambivalent now. Like Don't Look Up, for example, is a great, like the public is stupid. Everybody on the right is stupid. Everybody on the left is really smart. Thank you. Next, you know, like like that's kind of the like kind of political depth that we get now. Or even there's the new genre of like rich people are stupid movies, like Glass Onion and stuff like that. Which, oh man, you're you're gonna you might hear about this. A lot of people really like Glass Onion. I thought Glass Onion was like Rian Johnson sitting on the toilet tweeting out his thoughts on how did you know Elon's not actually a genius. And it's like, okay, yeah, like to an extent, but like, God, like this is like just the the t- most Twitter movie possible. Like, and like you have Daniel Craig staring into the camera, lecturing the audience on like, here's what you should believe exactly on this political topic. And I, I just, that is what I think really bothers me about I always politics tell people, in movies. What I always tell people is I want... Like, if a movie is going to have a particular viewpoint, I want to be maybe seduced into that viewpoint by the way the story is told. You know, I want you to, like, seduce me into it. It's like a fucking dance, right? You got to you gotta seduce me with your kind of worldview or what you're trying to present. I don't want to be, like, brutally fucked by fucking Conan the Barbarian, <laughs> you know, where you're, <laughs> you're like, shoving them. The, you know, you're, you're just, like, yeah, it's the lecturing me, you know? It's the heavy handedness. And I think that really does deaden art in a way, in a way where like, and it, and it also kind of, it makes it hard to complain about too, because you have stuff where like, then because the politics ostensibly being expressed by the media are progressive, they can kind of hide behind their diverse cast and something like that. And be like, oh, you didn't like this because we hired this diverse person. They might not actually be treating that per- that actor well, right? Like, oh, no, should I say it? Okay, Disney Star Wars. Okay, I'm going there. John Boyega, for example, okay? John Boyega was not treated very well by Disney and the Star Wars stuff, and they gave him a terrible character arc. But if you were to criticize like a, like one of the new Star Wars movies, they'd be like, so you hate John Boyega, do you? Or like you hate the person who played Rose or whatever, you can cut this. I can't believe I'm talking about Star Wars, but like you, you get my point where not, it also becomes frustrating to talk about where. Well, like, it, it can become convenient cover, right? Like uh, if someone doesn't like, like the incredible She-Hulk TV show, they can just say, well, why yeah. do you hate women? You know, like, yeah, There's like a midwit quality to some of these like productions and they're not even necessarily being great to the actors that they're touting as representation, but they kind of use those representative actors as, as like shield cover in a, in a way that's like, I think kind of scummy, but I mean, the, to get back to the original point, it seems like the writer's strike is, I mean, they've explicitly cited AI in their in their stuff yeah and i think they have reasons to be concerned about it. i mean i am like as much as i've bitched about hollywood writing over the past maybe decade 
I'm also very supportive of it. So yeah, of the of the strike itself, and I do think they have real concerns. Well, if you were if you were a writer in Hollywood, like trying to write something different, for example, maybe this would bother you. Or like you're just a guy who's doing his job, guy or girl who's doing his job, and like at the end of the day, even if I, I think that the reason that entertainment has kind of become drivel is not just on writers. I think there is a cultural underpinning to it. There is like a alienation that um, art institutions have from the rest of society that has led them to flee to politics. That was all the, all the point I was trying to make. And yes, they can flee to the left or they can flee to the right. But the alienation of art institutions from society has led them to flee to kind of this like politics, Funko pop zone of thinking um, that I just like, I don't know. Uh, it, it's I, like, I feel like you're dancing around the uh, often spoken criticism that now all art and movies are basically made for children. It, it seems that way. I mean, even like stuff like a 24 does not really strike me as, as like, uh, well, I can't talk about it all in a sweeping way. Cause I liked some of it, but there, the the I, even the idea of a deep art movie seems kind of lacking to me today, um, compared to stuff I've I've watched from the past, and even even like I don't know, like more some of the more recent stuff that's good, like Children of Men, like I can name, but like I, I, there hasn't been a really damn good movie that knocked my socks off in a while, um, and maybe I'm looking in the wrong places, but. It just feels like something qualitative has has changed and things like the you've got the decline of the mid budget movie is a, a thing that's cited a lot that I think is a true complaint people have. And that's not something that writers have a lot of control over. I mean, they are ultimately writers are are working within the market. Um, and if scripts about weird, cool stuff aren't going to get accepted, I mean, that's just what's happening right now. Right. And, uh, that's not really under their control. I'm, as- I'm sure someone's going to respond to us by, because I've gotten this before and I'm, I'm at least willing to uh, entertain it. Do you think it's just, we're getting old? <laughs> I don't know. Cause I don't have to look that far back for stuff that I like. And I would just challenge them to give me an example then of good stuff, because I I will I will say, like, there has always been pop movies. There's always been pop cultural movies, but I feel like there were more layers in the past and there were much more um, kind of. Again, those mid budgets and those kind of director driven things, whereas you have I mean, objectively right? Like Disney has taken over more of the media landscape. So decisions are more corporate driven. It is like movies are produced by board and by like a kind of coalition of producers and collectively in that way more than they were in the past. And that is not like I happened to get older as that was happening because time is linear. I don't know that I would have had the same complaints about movies if I had gotten old in the seventies, you know, like 
Maybe, maybe I would have said George Lucas is just doing Kurosawa, I, but I don't think so. I mean, I think I would have thought it was cool. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that you there's just enough objectively that you can point to to say that there has been a like, like, how could Marvel have not, and Disney and all of that have not changed the way movies are made? I mean, it made a ton of money and it's a lot of what comes out and you can see like comedies like goofy comedies don't really come out anymore and yes like well maybe- yeah especially now that you know i mean we're, we're not just you know a lot of uh, uh, hollywood is trying to appeal to different markets now so it's like if you're trying to appeal to the chinese market a lot of those goofy comedies aren't going to translate necessarily to that culture. So that is another, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into why films are the way they are right now. Of course. And the international market also introduces like weird hypocrisies into the like claims of progressiveness that Hollywood makes now as well. I mean, you have, um, I was, you know, if you talk about the star Wars sequels, they, they took John Boyega off of the, off of foreign posters for some of these movies. I mean, and then they have the gall to like be like fans of our movies are racist. It's like, no, you're racist. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm like sounding like an angry Star Wars nerd now because I am, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I will be honest. Like, I you know what? I've never gotten into Star Wars. I'm a THX one thousand one hundred thirty eight kind of guy. Hey, I I'm a George Lucas fan, so I'm there with you on that. Um, it's like. Uh, but I could I could go into like this this I could go into the the prequel defense I have I, I've got everything all right it's real that bad. that should be another episode for another time um, <laughs> that's real bad stuff <laughs> but, so before we wrap up like yeah. do you have so I don't want to go back to the writer's skill thing too much but like what's your basic assessment on how how people are looking at that. Well, I don't know. It hasn't really popped up as a huge discourse thing either is one thing to think about, like is that it's it's not making a ton of waves. It is it almost feels expected in a way. It's not offensive to me that the writers are striking. It doesn't it also like doesn't seem like. I don't know, I'm not like having trouble sleeping because of their plight either. It seems like it's like kind of in the way like. Let me bring up like two different French protests that have happened recently. Okay. Like the French, the most recent French protests about the pension, right? You had millions of people yeah, coming. Yeah, those were wild, like people on the streets. Wild, you know? Yeah. Society disrupting. But it also sort of fit the typical French protest cycle where the unions called for it. There was like, it was clear whose side was on what and all of that. And they weren't able to achieve their objectives, really. They, they just, it didn't work, even though there were so many people ostensibly involved in it. Go back a few more years and you have the yellow vests, okay? Not really officially called by any union. You have something that just kind of coalesced and everybody's kind of, everybody in politics is kind of suspicious of it. Is it far left? Is it far right? What is this? But it comes out of nowhere and it's, speaking to more anti-political concerns and they actually achieved what they wanted and more right there the tax they were protesting uh was affected 
And then they also got a wage increase out of the yellow vests, which like these organized union protests that brought millions of people out couldn't achieve what they wanted to. So I, I also think like the Hollywood writers strike, it is a niche effort. It is not like this is not some wildcat like groundbreaking type of thing. So, I mean, I wish them the best. Ultimately, I root for them against like the powers that be of Hollywood. But then also, yeah, I, I was feel... going to say, I am, I am admittedly partisan on this issue. I'm yeah. very much and, pro and, and the me, WGA. Me but... too. If you, if you, if you force me to be like gun to my head, obviously, I'm, I'm with the writers who are striking. But I also think like this is also it's much more of like a opposition negotiation type of thing where they have relationships with the studios and they're figuring out in an employer employee kind of way where do we meet in the middle on this issue it's not like a and i think that's just part of like like to me it's it's like much more encapsulated in the capitalist labor market process as like a union effort. I wouldn't call it like a radical revolutionary thing, which, you know, not every, not everything has to be that that's fine. Um, But I think a lot of people on the internet, at least when they talk about strikes, like it, it, it takes on this enormous moral weight because of the old language of like the 18th, 19th, 20th century left about strikes, where if you apply it to like the tech sector today, there's tech worker strikes that just like, yeah, I wish you the best. But at the same time, like what they're demanding is not necessarily what we would think of historically from like a union. So then last thing, uh, you have a new podcast coming out. You want to talk about that a bit? Sure. So that's me and a couple of historians, uh, Joe and Anton, and it's called New Disorder, A History of the 21st Century. We're looking at specifically the last 23 years as history, more than as current events. And we're trying to take a deep historical lens to it, look at what's happened in the past to lead to it. And a a big part of what we, we really see as the key development of the 21st century is a sharpening of the antagonism between politics and civil society. So a lot of it also revolves around that theme, right? Like the the growing mistrust of political institutions, um, electoral participations fluctuating, uh, the sort of so-called populist interventions, things like that. And also the decline of the political class, the way politics has become more deranged, things of that nature. So for example, uh, one of our first episodes is about Henry Kissinger And we're looking at him as an example of how the elite's view of themselves and the world has changed, right? Because Kissinger, obviously, he's this realist. He thinks of things in this kind of mercenary, we will advance American interests, like type of like hardcore way. Class guises themselves in a lot of moral, a lot more human rights type speech and that kind of thing, even if they're willing to do a lot of the same things. So and, you cut out there for a second. You were saying Kissinger represented that sort of like, we must do what we have to do side. And then you're saying there's another faction. I would say the contemporary elite views themselves much more as moral crusaders. Right. As opposed to Kissinger, who was as just sort of the cold. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think for Kissinger, like the he's doing his duty, like there's a virtue ethics to Kissinger in the idea of civic duty, but you can subsume a lot of amoral things under that. Um, whereas I think the current elite, it's weird. Kissinger had his 100th birthday recently, and there were a lot of political people who attended the event, but they have this reverence for him. And then at the same time, they're ashamed of Henry Kissinger. And they don't really know how to square the circle on a, on a figure like that. So he's a very interesting guy for, for me to look at with how has the elite changed from the 20th to, to the 20th. Oh. He's an interesting guy for me to look at with how the elite has changed from the 20th century to the 21st in terms of their worldview, their posturing, um, how they see other countries. I mean, Kissinger is much more on board with like integration with Russia and China into a world system for the US. Um, but as the post-war order that Kissinger created kind of decays away and American empire declines, there's these kind of tensions bubbling up now. So there's a lot of different things you can get into. He's a, It's an interesting thing to start a podcast about the 21st century with a dinosaur like Kissinger. But he he becomes this lens that we're using to look at um, through, I mean, he said all these comments about COVID. For example, he had a, um, in, in April 2020, he came out with an article about COVID that's very weird. I'll just put it, I'll just leave it there. It's very weird. Well, he, it's, why is it very weird? You can't just leave us with it. Okay. He, it's titled, COVID Will Forever Alter the World Order. And this is somebody who helped construct the post-World War II, like, American dominated world order saying like it's over. And he really sees like a threat of a huge loss of legitimacy in the COVID-19 response in the pandemic in basically like you guys are promising that political will alone is going to control a virus, not just reduce deaths from it, not just like save lives. The like, the narrative in 2020 that he was noticing from politicians and which, you know, I, I noticed as well was we are going to contain this. And that was kind of the promise that was made. And the public was willing to concede a lot in order to see that happen. And the idea was, well, if that doesn't happen, how is the public going to feel? And we're now in a state where, and no, really nobody wants to talk about COVID, but if you were really, really, really pro lockdown, you're not happy. If you were really, really, really anti-lockdown, you're not happy. Nobody really won in terms of if you're in the public and you like thought you were getting something out of what was going on or wanted something different to happen. They didn't really satisfy any constituency because to the people who wanted to do more, it failed. And to the people who didn't want to do anything, look, see, it failed. Or, you know, when I say didn't want to do anything, maybe wanted a different kind of response is a, a much fairer way to put it. But the point being, there was a huge threat of loss of legitimacy in the level of control by political will that was promised. Now, he also has comments about Ukraine that ended up pretty controversial that we get into as well. Um, somebody from like the Zelensky administration actually got really mad at Kissinger. He had a Wall Street Journal article proposing... Um, a peace deal and that kind of thing that uh, the Biden administration had to kind of clean up, like say Henry Kissinger was speaking as a civilian, all of that stuff. So 
Weirdly, for a 100-year-old man, he has not been enjoying his retirement. He's been peeking his head over the fence to be like, hey, my successors are idiots. I mean, he really seems to highlight the incompetence of the current political class. And I'm not saying that we should go back to the Henry Kissinger style political class. But when you've got this OG establishment guy. Yeah, I I was going to say this before we record it for people that don't know, I was I was bringing up the other figure I consider just as important as Kissinger is Shabiknu Brzezinski. And near the end of his life, um, I forget if he died in it was after Trump got elected, but I don't know if it was 2017 or 2000. He was also sort of mirroring what you're saying, where he sort of said, oh, my successors listen to me way too much. And, you know, they're not willing to adapt to different circumstances. He was kind of saying my successors are wrong and they're kind of acting like idiots. Yeah. I mean, Kissinger put out a book called Leadership, but it should really be called Misleadership because he just takes he's using examples of people he worked with to be like, this is what was good and leaders are incompetent now. And so it's really interesting to see somebody who could kind of fade away with a legacy untarnished, who actually feels like maybe their legacy is threatened by just how crazy the political class has gotten. And again, that's not a call for a return to Kissinger style empire, but it's like, why is why is somebody like that like he's not just saying oh they they don't have my policy interests he genuinely thinks that that like the wheels are coming off the wagon and that like they are they are basically making american decline worse than it has to be those kinds of things i mean he he basically seems to think that they've lost the public's trust or he's started to notice that they've lost the public's trust which is something that's been a theme in my work for years now. Um, and uh, it's interesting to see, to be able to say, don't take it from me. Like the OG establishment guy is noticing that they've lost the public's trust. So, you know, that's that's something to investigate. Anything else you want to say about Kissinger? I mean, he ties into the AI thing too, right? Kissinger is also very concerned about AI. I imagine for Kissinger, it is similar to the concerns of contemporary politicians on this issue, where how is this going to affect warfare? How is this going to affect geopolitics? How is this going to affect the ability to control narratives? I think that, that and even, you know, that even goes back to why is Kissinger mad at the current political class? It's not because he he's, you know, so sad that they're screwing over the everyday person he's worried about their ability to manage things and to keep a lid on society we'll leave it at that uh grant how can my listeners keep up with your work that's a good question so we do have a new disorder substack set up that is going to basically be we're definitely going to repost the episodes to that and i can get you the link to the Substack for you to put maybe in the description um so we're going to repost stuff from the podcast there we're still figuring out where everything is going to land i imagine we're going to do a youtube channel stuff like that um and then you know we'll we'll just take it from there probably uh you know as podcasters of course grifters and hustlers at heart. So there'll be a Patreon. Don't you worry. 
and uh, we'll just uh, we'll I'll, I'll I'll come up with some links. Okay, and uh, thank you again, Grant, for coming on Parallax Views. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Grant M. Gallagher, and you'll be on the lookout for his podcast. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.